You're listening to Different Things Can Be Sad. Hello and welcome to Different Things Can Be Sad, where it's cool to care about politics and pop culture. I'm Yasmin Lomax. I'm Micah Hahn. And we are your hosts of this monthly politics and pop culture podcast. And we're both coming to you today from very hot apartments. We are currently experiencing... (laughs) Like, I guess the East Coast heat wave, but I don't know if we can really yeah. call it that when the West Coast is I don't is think suffering. it really, it really doesn't, it's not the same. I, I think actually here it was the same temperature when you added the humidity onto like the actual temperature. Right. The humidity yesterday. is like a key factor. The humidity is brutal. Um, I'm not a fan. No. And I think the fact that New York smells like hot trash should also give us like a few degrees to even it up. Yeah, you definitely get that. I it, At least it's like not that um, trashy in <laughs> Montreal. Big trash city. Um, yes. Luckily, we have back alleys, so no trash on the streets. Oh, you're so lucky. I Actually, my big experience that I wanted to share from what happened to me this June uh, which, if you're new here, we do like to do a little catching up, a little personal catch up time before we dive into the hashtag content. But yeah, this June, I stepped on a dead rat. So um, that was really fun. Um, I forgot you had told me the story and just remembered. Yeah. And I'm like, it's fully disgusting. No, thank it you. Had died in the protective cover that I use for my bicycle. And when I picked up the cover to put it on my bike, it fell out and I accidentally stepped on it. So yeah, um, not great. I was able to get away for a few days. I went to Maine and New Hampshire earlier in June and had a lovely restful few days away by the sea. And I did that thing of like, when was the last time I saw the ocean? Whereas I'm I'm (laughs) sure I've actually seen it quite recently, but Mm-hmm. When you're in a city that just like very much gets in your head. Um, so mm-hmm. anyway, how was your June? I was good. I came to Montreal. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, so you're reporting from I, Montreal this month. I am reporting from Montreal this month. Um, my report is it's warm. Um, <laughs> and like very lovely. Um, everyone says Montreal is a lot of fun in the summer. And I think part of that is like they have really good summer events, which obviously are not happening. But the other part of that is that I think Montreal has some of the most parks per capita Ooh. in North America. Like, it's it's fantastic. And you can drink in parks as long as you have a meal, which, like, oh, come on. we take loosely. Is that going to be, um, like, the New York rule that they had, like, last summer when bars would only open, but they had to serve you, like, a meal? So they were just serving people, like, a bag of Cheetos or, like, one Trader Joe's dumpling. <laughs> maybe um this is i like haven't been caught yet drinking without a meal but that's been fun well fooled you i am the montreal police put your hands up (laughs) i have just tricked you did you like my french yeah it's really good (laughs) um yeah so that that's been uh june and did you do any reading, watching, or listening this month, Micah? Again, if this is your first time tuning in, this is a thing we do. We talk about the things we read, watch, and listen to. So I guess specifically things you read. Do you want to fill me in on those? Yeah, I have two things for you. One is an article. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are a regular listener of this podcast, you know that we um, are frequent watchers of the Bachelor franchise. Um, and last week i guess at the end of june rachel Lindsay, who was the first black bachelorette um had an article like a cover story which she wrote herself in vulture um called rachel Lindsay has no roses left to burn um and it's great she um recently like if you don't follow the bachelor franchise once you're in it it's hard to leave and like you can get paid a lot of money to like be part of the podcast and like do all these other things and so she has hosted the podcast since her season in 2017 16 um but she recently left the show because of the racism within the franchise which she had originally sought to change but realized that she could not and it wasn't worth her own mental health and happiness um 
I would highly recommend if you like are interested in pop culture or the bachelor bachelorette at all, I would highly recommend going and reading it because I think it's a really important discussion that needs to be had. And she's like a great author. She's coming out with a book soon. So, Oh, that's exciting. Is it like a biography book or? Yeah, it's about, um, I think it's about her journey. Oh, um, as they like to say in the franchise. Yeah. yeah. Um, So that, great. I also, as I... (laughs) I think I talked about it in April. Um, said I was reading *The Lowlands* by Jempo Lahiri. I talked about the namesake in um, April as well, and I just wanted to say that I finished this book and I really enjoyed it. Um, I think it features a few more women than the namesake does, which is nice. We like that. Um, we do like that. So, um, a really great book if you want to like a really good, not easy read, but like. I, it was hard to put the book down. It was great. Oh, I love an addictive book like that. I know. I felt I had that a little bit this month. Um, I mm-hmm. read One Last Stop by Casey McQuiston. I'm so jealous. It's definitely been a much anticipated uh, book for both of us. If you don't know, we loved mm-hmm. her first novel, uh, Red, White, and Royal Blue. So we're super, super excited about this one. And um, it a copy came up very, very quickly in my library somehow. So I snapped that straight up. Um, if you don't know, One Last Stop basically follows this like cynical, I think she's about 23, 24 year old called August, who having like previously been roped into her mother's amateur detective work back in New Orleans, moves to New York to finish college. And she's sort of like a perpetual senior. She keeps like changing schools and majors and like isn't ready to move on to the next stage of her life. Um, So Mm -hmm. she kind of comes to New York and just wants to like get by, but she ends up falling into this like super fun social life of her very LGBTQ plus friendly apartment roommates. And then she falls in love with a girl she meets on the subway who just so happens to be caught in a time slip from the 1970s and is trapped on the Q train. So definitely a very fun and original Mm -hmm. premise um, there. Um, you know, we see a lot of like August finally graduating and figuring out what she wants to do in life. There's lots of like wild parties that revolve around drag shows, which is really fun. And then trying to help uh, Jane, who is the subway girl, remember who she is and get back to where she belongs. But then there's also trying to save a restaurant that August works at and then trying to wrap up the mystery of her missing uncle. So Although those are really fun, I did think there was maybe like a little bit too much going on. Like that's like Mm -hmm. literally like like seven or eight uh, threads there. And I think maybe they weren't all given um, equal weight because of that or like, you know, the attention that they they maybe should have. Um, And it was very, very long. So they kind of be my only caveats. Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. really liked the depiction of New York in it, but it kind of got me thinking – I guess, yeah, about, about like the perception or um, how New York is depicted in art. You know, this was a very rosy portrayal where it was all about mm-hmm. like the diversity in Brooklyn and acceptance, which I definitely think is, you know, a part of New York. But I think sometimes I'm a little bit like tired of seeing this like, you'll find yourself in New York and like New York is where dreams are made of thing. Um, Which I think is like a reason that I loved Schitt's Creek so much because like they kind of moved to a crappy town and really have to like dig into themselves to find themselves and, you Mm -hmm. know, use sort of like the limited resources there to build a good life. Um, So I think I'd be interested in seeing maybe like a little bit more of that in the future Mm -hmm. but that's not really a point on one last up it just kind of got me thinking about that so yeah i'm excited for you to read it though micah i'm pumped hopefully next month yes fingers crossed uh what about watching did you watch anything um i've watched many things but the most exciting thing i watched was just location based because i got to see a movie in theaters it was great um, we went and saw In the Heights mm-hmm. on the first day, it was possibly available to watch mm-hmm. in Canada, um, or at least in BC. 
So it's a movie based, if you don't know, it's based on Lin-Manuel Miranda's 2008 Broadway show. Um, but they've changed the plot um, a little bit to make it a little more current. Um, and it centers around a blackout that happens in Washington Heights, which is a neighborhood um, at the tippy top of Manhattan um, in the middle of the summer. Oh, speaking um, of the tippy top, yeah, very familiar with Washington Heights. I did my Broadway, yeah. was my Broadway walk this month or was that last month? I don't remember. Maybe it was last month. I did a big walk of Manhattan and Washington Heights in the summer was definitely a fun neighborhood to visit. So I'm intrigued, cool. Micah. Tell me more. Yeah. Um, I, so I think like three, two days before watching, like we bought our tickets quite in advance. And then as the movie was coming out, there's actually like quite a bit of criticism of it, um, specifically from people from the Washington Heights community, which accused um, the movie of um, having quite a bit of colorism, specifically Washington Heights is known for being Afro-Latino, um, and yet none of the lead roles were Afro-Latino. Mm. Um, and the only black people you saw in the movie were extras. There was one lead role, but he like canonically was not Latino. Hmm. Um especially in the play they like scraped it out a little bit in the movie regardless um obviously like i can't speak to that because i like don't know what the makeup of washington heights is or like how that should be depicted properly um i'll put a uh, uh, article with some of the criticism in it um outside of that like it was like very fun to be back at the movies um and to see a musical a very like fun way to go back yeah um, that's like a whole and some experience. of it was like yeah some of it was really pretty and it was almost all shot on location which i think was great there's a my favorite though is that there's the scene in a pool i've seen and this it's, like, on instagram it's, yeah like videos of them shooting yeah so they shot it um it's like one of the most popular pools in manhattan and they got four days to do it and then it rained every single day no. except for one um, and you can tell, like, if you, like, know anything mm -hmm. about movie making, oh, now that if you go and watch it, you can go look for it. You can tell that some of the shots are very artificially lit. Oh, really? And they're super weird looking. Like, it's the weirdest scene in the whole movie because it just, like, it looks like they're jumping through time and some of it's at night and, like, it's very bizarre. Oh, no. Um, that's funny. And they've tried to fix it. Oh. Um, but you can't really tell. So, yeah, I would, um, if you want, like, a fun summer movie watch that but like know that i think people from that community have had some issues with it noted noted um well i have been re-watching something this month i haven't been doing a lot of theatering um but i have been re-watching maybe my favorite show ever which is the oc the early 2000s teen drama um mm -hmm. we watched a little bit of it together a few years ago right yes. Micah? yeah it's it's a fun show and sort of like our access point into it is Ryan Atwood and he's like a kid from the wrong side of the tracks in California who like steals a car with his brother and you know ends up in juvie but then is taken in by his DA Sandy Cohen who is the best TV dad ever I mean, oh, hmm. maybe Coach Taylor Coach Taylor is up there as well um, yes. but Sandy Cohen lives in this like uber wealthy uh, like neighborhood um community i believe they refer to it a lot as a community in the show but mm. uh newport beach in orange county and ryan um, ends up living with the cohen family befriending their son seth and then has like this on and off again romance with next door neighbor marissa cooper and the show is basically known for like all the crazy crazy stuff that happens i think the most iconic scene from that show is Marissa shooting Ryan's brother Trey as Imogen Heap's hide and seek plays over the top of it. But <laughs> that's a little bit later. Uh, within like the first seven or eight episodes, you know, we have this like car stolen in the first scene, but there's also like this big financial felony scandal. There's a burnt down house. There's like a public brawl at this fancy ball. A teenager overdoses in Tijuana. Like it's, it's fully crazy. And the reason I've Damn. kind of been getting back into this, which is actually tied to my listening for this month, is I have started listening to a podcast called Welcome to the OC Bitches, which is a <laughs> rewatch podcast by Melinda Clark and Rachel Bilson, who play Julie Cooper and Summer Roberts on the show. 
And although they're maybe not the most natural podcasters, I love the OC so much. I don't mind. Um, they get a lot of great guests mm-hmm. on the show, like the show creator Josh Schwartz is in the first episode. And we get Peter Gallagher and Tate Donovan, who uh, OC fans will definitely recognize on uh, early episodes. But I think I really enjoyed the podcast because the OC is like really, really long. I think season one is like 22 episodes that are all like 45 minutes long. Mm-hmm. So kind of having this like podcast that comes out on a weekly basis feels like a healthy way to get back into it, you know, so I'm not just accidentally devouring it or that like it doesn't feel too daunting that I never watch my favorite show again. So definitely enjoying that. And then again, that got me thinking, I'm very Carrie Bradshaw this month, you know, I'm very, (laughs) one day, you know, we've got this um, podcast, we've got there's the Office Ladies podcast, which is the Office Rewatch one. I know there's like a Sopranos one out there, but mm-hmm. it kind of got me wondering, like, when is the Friday Night Lights podcast coming? Because I want it. I really do. Yeah. I think it gets oh my God. overlooked. You know, um, like Gossip Girl's coming back. These ones have got podcasts. And I just don't think there's been like anything in the works for Friday Night Lights. And it needs it. I just wonder if it's hosted by cast members, like who's hosting it? That's okay. That's really interesting because I feel like it's never the leads. So it's whoever isn't working a lot. Right, right. um, So it's, it's, it's never really the leads, but it does have to be someone who's like in the show the whole time, right? Like you can't really say like Jason Street. Yeah. So also he's working. For miraculously playing the same age as he's been this whole time. Is he really? I don't know. He's like now, I think he played a like late 20s, early 30s person. Like he obviously did street and then, but then did that for like a decade at least. Right. Interesting. And is still in kind of that zone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that was like Um, an interesting like team. Julie. Who, who, sorry? Julie? Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I think she would be a good candidate because I was just about to say like, it's an interesting teen show and that the main characters are actually the parents. Um, yeah. And they're very busy. And surprisingly, Landry is the busiest of everyone in the show. So it exactly. definitely won't be him. Whereas his role mm-hmm. was like, would have been prime position to, to yeah, do yeah. it. But you're right. I think Julie Taylor could be a good candidate. Maybe like Matt Saracen. I don't know. I don't know if he's the type who would do it though. Yeah, probably. Not. I would say Julian Tyra would probably. That would be cute. Yeah, yeah. I feel like Lila maybe just because I know like a lot of people of her kind of level. Like I know Justin Long has a podcast now and I'm kind of like, you know, they mm-hmm. were all sort of operating and like it kids around the same time. But I feel like Lila wasn't in it as much as Tyra and Julie. So yeah. They're going to be my bets. Maybe I'll just send them a little DM and be like, hey guys, have you considered a Friday Night Lights podcast? Because i subscribe. You would make a lot of money from that. Yeah. I mean, even this one has got me thinking that because I think the OC has only just like landed on HBO. I could be wrong. But I know Rachel Bilson mentioned that she was like approached to do the podcast. Um, yeah. So I feel like, you know the streaming head honchos were on to something um, with this. And I mean, they got me hooked. So mm-hmm. there you go. Good job. Good job. Um, what have you been listening to? I have been listening to at least once a day, Solar Power by Lord. <gasps> oh, look at you um, being happy. Good for you. That's wonderful. So this is the new Lord single. Unlike, so she left us with melodrama four years ago. It was a breakup album, but it ended beautifully. Um, and then she brought us solar power from the beaches of New Zealand. Um, and she's bringing us a whole album on August 20th. So sweet. So get pumped. Um, and she's going on tour. So much excitement going on. Yes. It's a great time. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my music update. There we go. Lots of reading, watching, and listening done this month. Welcome to our politics section of this podcast, which is going to be a little bit different this month. Um, I had a really hard time choosing a topic, um, mostly because as someone who lives in Canada, there's really only one story politically that I've been thinking about. 
And I don't necessarily know if it's mine to tell. So I think we're going to like straddle that. Not everyone knows what's happening in Canada, but um, also it's not necessarily my story. So if you remember last year in May, um, we didn't post a podcast because we were um, wanting to make space for the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests that were happening at the time. Um, And in Canada right now, it feels like a similar reckoning is happening about our country's colonial and frankly genocidal past. And um, I don't, I just like didn't seem bright to do like a full like, here's a wacky thing that's happening in politics this month, which I could have done. But so I thought I would bring our non-Canadian listeners up to speed. And I'd also point people in the direction of resources that center Indigenous communities and then also tell you some um, calls to action that Indigenous people have been making of colonizers. So if you haven't been following the news on May 27th, the um, Tecumloops to Sequequam Nation um, announced that they had discovered mass graves of at least 250 children um, that they found using a ground penetrating radar um, when they were investigating the site of a former residential school. So that's in, I know, it's like really horrific, but unfortunately not surprising. Um, I mean, there's been pretty similar things happening in Ireland, which is what this reminded me of when I first heard about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think there's a, the Irish connection, like there, um, as you'll see mm-hmm. if you don't know. So residential schools, which is where um, this mass gravesite was found, um, are or were institutions run by the Canadian government, and but often in conjunction with Anglican, Presbyterian, United, and Catholic churches, um, and they were used to um, essentially assimilate Indigenous children. Um, so nominally, um, they were made to teach indigenous children English and about Canadian values, but that is not what they are. Um, they weren't really schools, which is why now you might see people calling them schools with quotation mm-hmm. marks. Um, what they really were, were ways to systematically take indigenous children away from their families. Um, the common phrase that people repeat that they said was, um, the goal was to beat the Indian out of the child. These were really horrific places. Um, And so as part of an attempt to reconcile with Indigenous peoples, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, did an investigation between 2008 and 2015 um, looking into the legacies of colonialism in Canada. And specifically where they were at residential schools, they were actually sponsored by a residential school survivor group, led by them. Um, They called these schools cultural genocide because what it really meant was that um, Indigenous children were taken away from their culture and lost their language. So language is a really important part of continuing as communities and like knowing your history, especially in Indigenous communities that have um, oral history. So. Not, but not only was it a cultural genocide, the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, estimates that 6,000 children died in oh residential schools. Um, but Indigenous communities say it's probably much larger oh than that. Um, and part of like this reckoning we've been having in the last month is demanding that the Catholic Church specifically, mm-hmm. but other churches as well, give over the records of who was staying mm-hmm. there um, or f- forced to stay there. Um, so that we can, like, find out where these children are, children who are now, like, adults. Yeah, which, you um, know, we'll see how that goes because the Catholic Church are pretty notorious for their cover-ups, so. Oh, yeah. Um, one Catholic, there's uh, some religious Catholic figure. I don't know what they're called. Um <laughs> It doesn't matter. Uh, it really doesn't like, matter. It doesn't matter. Um, their titles are not important. Someone, one in Ontario the other day got called out because he said they were good things that came from residential schools, oh. which is kind of a common line amongst conservative Canadians, um, though less so 
in the last couple of weeks, which I guess is good. Mm-hmm. Um, so residential schools were open in Canada from the 1880s, which is basically when Canada started as a nation, um, until the last ones closed in the 1990s. Gosh, isn't um, that like, I think crazy last... to think about? I think we like yeah. to think of all these things as happening in like black and white photos, but not while we were growing up, you know? Exactly. I think um, I think someone – there was a tweet going around of, like, I went to high school when kids were in residential schools and, like, like this is, like, a very – it's a present history. Yeah, and the person tweeting um, that isn't your grandma. It's your no, friend. No, no, it's your – Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think – so the legacies of residential schools are really complex um, for – every way you can possibly think about, but a huge, um, mostly because they have a huge amount of trauma that they've caused mm-hmm. in Indigenous communities across Canada. Um, and, like, they aren't over in a way. Like, part of the point of residential schools or the main point was to take Indigenous children from their families, and Canada still systematically does this. There are more Indigenous children in foster care now than there ever were in a residential school. Oh, wow. Wow, that's... Yeah, a really interesting and present way to to think about this as well, right? It's it's not just about correcting the wrongs of the past, which is obviously super super important, but it has present day consequences as well that people might not yeah. even realize. Um, only yesterday did a, there was a policy in hospitals in Newfoundland that. Um, was to like monitor indigenous mothers when they gave birth and then take children away immediately. <gasps> and they only yesterday decided to get rid of that policy if, um, and not like literally racially profile these mothers. Oh, yes. God. Yeah, it is. It is insane. And yeah. I, I should just add when I say right the wrongs of the past, you obviously can't do that. It's more recognize the wrongs of the past. And yeah, to think that stuff like that was happening up until two days ago is mind blowing. It's like, yeah. Um, so since they discovered um, that first mass grave site, they've um, different indigenous groups have been searching other known residential schools and like from word of mouth or oral histories from these communities, they know where they are, um, but they've never been investigated. So on June 24th, the Cow SS Nation in Saskatchewan um, announced that they had found the unmarked graves of 751 <gasps> children and young adults. Oh, my gosh. Um, and I think, like, yeah. Like, one is too many, and 750 is just, like, awful. Yeah, I mean, putting um, that into, like, you know, real-world examples, that would be, like, everyone I went to high school with. Yeah. Like, every single person. That's insane. It's, like, it's truly horrific um, and, like, deeply traumatizing. Absolutely. To, like, in, in the news, like, for a whole month for Indigenous peoples to, like, mm-hmm. see these numbers mm-hmm. come out. Like, it's just been not great. Um, so I'm going to leave more details about this written by Indigenous peoples because um, it's their story. Um, but I'm going to give you some of the calls to actions that they have been um, like indigenous journalists and um, activists have been cl- um, asking mm-hmm. us mm-hmm. of us. So um, if you're Canadian, but also if you're just interested, but specifically if you're a Canadian, um, it's really important to read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to actions. Um, so there are 94 of them. Mm-hmm. And basically they like did this almost decade long investigation and then came up with specific changes that can happen Mm -hmm. to move the country towards reconciliation. One of them just changed today, um, and it was to change the oath of citizenship, so if you become a citizen of Canada, to recognize the nation's um, responsibility towards Indigenous peoples. I do think Um, stuff like that is, is so, so important. And I mean, Australia is by no means perfect, which we have discussed at length on this mm -hmm. podcast, but, um, 
you know, there is always an acknowledgement of land in schools, at events, um, in mm-hmm. like publications there. And I did find it very jarring when I moved to the US and yeah. no one could tell you what land they were living on. And that was never acknowledged. Yeah, it's the US. We'll actually talk about the US in a mm-hmm. second. Um, um, yeah, so that's like a very surface level, obviously, a recognition a recognition of what land you're on or that you have rights towards Indigenous peoples mm-hmm. as a Canadian. But there are, there are other things in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to actions that are like get people clean drinking water, which indi- mm-hmm. many Indigenous leaders still do not have. Um, so that's the first call to action. The second one is to call your MP or your MLA and ask for the implementation of the TRC calls to action. Um Okay, so sorry, part of this, this isn't like one of the 94. This is the first step that we're no. saying is to read the 94. The second step Four. is to... The second step is to demand that the 94 are enacted. Fabulous, thank you. Because um, some of the... So some of the calls to action are specifically for the news media. Mm. Some of them are for like... Um, some of them... A lot of them are for the government. Right, right. Um, part of that is that... And this isn't in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to actions... But the federal government has been fighting residential school survivors in court for decades now as they try and get compensation for the trauma that they've been caused. Mm -hmm. Um, And they keep on fighting them in court um, and not giving them like any sort Mm -hmm. of compensation or the compensation they deserve, Mm -hmm. really. So that has been a big call Mm -hmm. from people for them to do that. my third call to action that I've seen going around a lot is to donate your money to Indigenous organizations. One, um, I think an Indigenous actor was saying every single time you see news about an Indigenous, um, an- another mass grave being found, you should be putting your money where your mouth mm-hmm. is because like words of uh, like condolence aren't enough. Um, There's a couple, um, there's like a lot of organizations. One is the Indian Residential School Survivor Society. Um, Another is the Orange Shirt Day Society. Or um, another was the Native Women's Association of Canada. So I'll be donating to the Native Women's Association of Canada and we'll be putting the links in our bio for them. Um, And then a fourth one, which is for our American listeners. Um, The Secretary of the Interior, Deb Halland, who is actually the first... Uh, I guess Native American is the word they use in the States. Um, Secretary Mm -hmm. um, is actually doing an investigation into similar schools that were in the U.S. Oh, wow. Um, So voicing your support for that, um, keeping an eye on what the Indigenous communities who are affected by this investigation are saying, um, I think would be really important of bringing like reconciliation and attention to your own nation. Absolutely. Because we're all living on stolen land right now. If you are in North America or in the U S and Canada. So those are my, that's my little breakdown of what's been happening in Canada. It's also um, Canada day, probably the day we post this or the day after, um, have a little think about like what that holiday means. Um, I know a lot of people are calling for it to be canceled. Um, wow. And this is, I think just a reflection of like, what does it actually mean to be Canadian? Mm-hmm. Um, in like when you, for almost all of its history, a country has been perpetuating, all of its history has been perpetuating like true harm and crimes against the indigenous people who live here. Yeah. So thanks for listening. Thank you so much, Manka. This has been very, very informative. And I think a really great way to share that information and then direct to information and resources. So thank you so much. So to change tech completely, This is a very abrupt change, so I apologize for that. But mm-hmm. we are going to be moving on to the pop culture segment, which today I am going to be calling Up in Arms About Animals. 
So the internet is usually mad about something. Actually, usually is probably um, putting it lightly. It's always mad about something. And this month, it was a lot of things concerning animals. So I am going to give you a little rundown of three animal-related controversies, uh, followed by my verdict on whether or not we should be angry about this. So who is ready for some light animal-related fun? Yeah. I'm yes, very ready. Yes. Thank you, Micah. That's great to hear. Okay, so the first um, story I would like to share is one about a girl pushing a bear off a fence. Have you seen this video, Micah? I have seen this video. Very interesting. This one is uh, a story about 17-year-old Haley Morinico. I hope that's how you pronounce her name, uh, who is from Los Angeles County. And she saw her little dogs running outside in her backyard and then an animal swiping at them from the fence where it was like sitting atop of and she basically pushed the bear off the fence like fully pushed a huge big brown bear off a fence to the ground to protect her dogs uh the original tiktok uh caption was my cousin Haley yeeted a bear off her fence today and saved her dogs and this yeah this video is pretty wild to see Definitely the lightest controversy that I'm going to discuss. Um, And one that was kind of just like a controversy because I feel it was like unnecessary discussion of people having this like, should you push a bear conversation? No, obviously you should not push a bear. No one is arguing about whether you should push a bear. She wasn't like going out there with the intention to push push a bear. She said herself that she actually didn't realize that it was a bear she just saw like through this moment of panic a big animal trying to hurt her dogs so she ran up and let instinct take over and ended up pushing a bear off a fence so i think this is a pretty clear-cut one let's just like nip this debate in the bud we'll just say you shouldn't push a bear mm-hmm. but i understand that sometimes instinct just takes over so yes. case closed on bear pushing Moving on to the great state of Texas, uh, this is a controversy that has been blowing up over TikTok, and it is about a a woman called Erica Thompson who uses the handle Texas Bee Works. Do you know about this account, Micah? Like, I know there was bee controversy, and that's all I know. Let me enlighten you about the bee controversy. So Texas Bee Works is a beekeeping company based in Austin, Texas, and its mission is to preserve, protect, and increase bee populations across the Lone Star State by helping bees and beekeepers thrive. Straight from the website there. So it (laughs) was founded by, as I mentioned, a woman named Erica Thompson, who's, I believe, about 34, 35 years old. And... She's kind of got famous on TikTok from doing these bee removal services. So rather than, you know, using this like bee vacuum or showing up in, you know, the huge white beekeeper outfits that we all see, um, Erica films herself maybe showing up to like, uh, like one of the more recent videos is like a big umbrella that bees have all gathered under. And she is just wearing like regular clothes, like here I would. She's got her hair all down and she just starts scooping these bees with her bare hands and putting them into boxes where she then takes them home. Um, so that is obviously like, you know, insane to see. It's definitely got famous. That's badass. Yeah, it's definitely got famous off that shock value but also you know her ability to find the queen bee in a huge swarm is like really impressive she can somehow spot them out of the swarm despite the fact they don't look like too much different from regular bees Mm -hmm. especially not to uri you know um you know she also shows this like kindness and patience and she finishes all her videos with and it was another great day of saving the bees And then there's (laughs) also the fact that she does this looking like a Disney princess. Like, she's undeniably gorgeous. Um, She's wearing these cute little outfits, and she's got long, blonde, flowing hair. And so no wonder she has now got, at time of reporting, around 7.1 million followers on TikTok. But there has been some controversy. 
So um, it kind of got started up. Well, one of the ways it was started up, I'm sure there's many others, but there is an account called LA Honeybee Rescue. And this is run by um, another female beekeeper who said um, in a TikTok, I'm 100% okay with her showing how docile swarms are. But the fact is that she goes into removals without wearing any safety gear, wearing black leggings, a black tank top, and a dark blue shirt. So this is kind of like a valid point that LA Honey Bee Rescue is making because, you know, you're supposed to have your hair pulled back while um, tending to bees because, you know, you don't want them in your hair. You're supposed to have like minimal skin exposed to reduce the sting risk and you're also supposed to wear white which is why we see that the traditional beekeeping outfits are these big you know white suits with the white hat Mm. um, because bees have actually evolved to defend their hives from wild animals and they usually have dark fur so i agree with la honeybees rescues comment here but it's sort of like saying you know, oh, she's doing this and she's making it seem so safe when actually it's really dangerous and it's setting a bad example. And I'm just like wondering how much the average TikTok user is going to start touching bees just because they've watched this video. Um, Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stupid people on the internet, but I have a little bit of faith that like a whole lifetime of villainizing bees isn't going to be overturned by this. Like, I think we shouldn't villainize them. We should look after them. But I really can't see people going in and starting to like scoop bees in this way with their bare hands i think it's a little bit like when you go see like a crazy car show or a fire dancer like you're not gonna start driving your own car like that or you're not gonna start picking up twigs at your next bonfire and twirling them around you know we just have to like at some point hope that people have common sense so you know i'm Mm -hmm. like what's that about but la honeybee rescue also claims that um, Erica is faking her rescues. Um, she points to the fact that a lot of the time the honeycomb that's shown in the videos. So like when she finds, um, like a swarm of bees, she yeah. pulls out the honeycomb they've been making. And she says that it's, um, LA honeybee rescue is saying that this comb is pre-cut. So obviously someone has come in before and like cut up the comb so that in the video she can just hold it up like that. And, they're actually claiming that her husband is doing the hard work for her, which I really don't mm-hmm. like because I don't think there's evidence of this. Like, I think that just comes across as internalized misogyny. There's no evidence that she hasn't been cutting up the comb before the videos. You know, she can't show everything on a video. So there's no evidence that she wasn't the one doing that. I think it's a little bit unfair to assume that her husband is doing all the hard work and whether the videos are faked or not, I think that responsibility should be with her. And I'm not really sure why we're bringing the husband into it. Maybe there's something I'm missing, but it just doesn't really sit right with me. So there's Mm -hmm. that aspect of the controversy. There's also an account called Entomology Abbey, who had been asked a lot about what they think about the Texas Bee Works account. And Abbey had, you know, made this video where she mentioned, you know, how great the work that Erica and her account are like, you know, doing good work. But she sort of pointed out that on the Texas um, Bee Works website, they claim that they're helping native bees and things like that. But we don't actually see evidence of that because honeybees are actually non-native. They're mainly used Mm. in agriculture so this account is basically just pointing out like what where are we seeing that texas bee works is actually doing work to save the bees like okay yeah you're saving these bees from being you know where they would have otherwise been exterminated but what are we doing to help native bee populations um so erica has actually addressed this and she said um For the past four years, I've worked to get legislation passed to protect bees and all pollinators. I even testified in March at the Capitol on HB 520, a proposed Texas bill to plant roadside habitats for native pollinators. And I think that's fair, but I do get the point that it's maybe like a little eh to sort of 
build your account and your following and probably make a lot of money off these like shock value videos when like really, you know, you're claiming your premise is to make real change for native pollinators. So I think mm-hmm. maybe seeing some of that wouldn't be a bad suggestion. Um, Erica has also said, you know, she's addressed the series of untrue and hurtful attacks on her. She said, it's a sad day when people see a woman doing something that's so outside of the norm, they assume there's no way she can actually be doing those things. And if she is, she must be getting help from a man. As a professional beekeeper, it's my mission and my purpose to help people understand and appreciate the work of bees and beekeepers. And I'd really like to get back to doing that now. So essentially my verdict on this is like, I'm not a beekeeper, but I do find her videos very, very enjoying. I think Mm -hmm. there's certain things we can point out. I think it probably is a good idea to make it clear that her practices are not safe for the average Joe. And I think, you know, if there's faking going on, okay, we can look into that. And if she's not doing enough to protect native pollinators and instead sort of like building this profile on like these shock value videos, cool, say that. I don't think we need to resort to sexism. Um, I think it's just a little lazy there, so... That's my verdict on the bees. Finally, on to the last and most recent controversy of the month. Wasabi. Does the name Wasabi mean anything to you, Micah? Of course it does. Of course I follow the Westminster Dog Show. Okay, I'm going to get your opinion on this um, in just a moment. But first, for the listeners, Mm -hmm. if you don't know... A Pekingese dog named Wasabi recently won Best in Show at the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show. This is like a very, very prestigious dog showing event. It's actually the second Mm -hmm. oldest continuous sporting event in the United States after the Kentucky Derby. And although it's normally held in New York City, it was held in Tarrytown, um, which is – they won't like me saying this, but like upstate New York. It's New York. It's not the city. Um, This year, (laughs) very recently. And – a little dog named Wasabi won. And I guess I should probably just describe Wasabi to you. We'll definitely post pictures on our Instagram, which is at DTCBS Podcast. But Wasabi is essentially like a big ball of fluff. He sort of looks like... Yes. I don't even... I don't really know how to describe him. Very long fur. Yes. Um, kind of like a solid mass in the mm-hmm. middle, but then mostly fur. Yes. So he's kind of got this like gray brown, very long hair, and then like a little very flat, very dark face. And he looks like a little yes. crazy, but I personally love him. What do you think about Wasabi? Um, I did enjoy the discourse about whether he was actually a dog. There was um, some really <laughs> funny like tweets of people being like, that's not a dog. Yes. That's something I pulled from my shower drain or like that's not a dog. That's the lint from the dryer. That was funny. Yes. Um, yeah. I think he, I think there were much like more traditionally beautiful dogs who were in the competition, mm-hmm. but I, I don't know enough about dog shows to make a true judgment. Well, you're about to learn a little bit more. Um, so I'm going to just get into some of the discourse about um, Wasabi specifically, but we'll also be touching on the dog show. So, A lot of people were very up in arms about Wasabi winning for a variety of reasons. One um, was people were concerned about the health of him and other dogs of his breed. Mm -hmm. So basically this breed is bred or I don't want to say bred for, but they're known for having a very squished face, which causes uh, Mm -hmm. breathing difficulty. Um, And then in combination, you know, with his really long hair and it being summer, it's not great. So that's what people were saying online. They were saying they were bred for the squished face. I'm just going to like point out that, um, you know, that's, yeah, it's it's a little bit, we're, we're figuring that out. So, what I said is a good point. They, uh, Pekingneses are, I sh- definitely looked up the pronunciation of this and I wish I'd done it again, but br- uh, brachycephalic. I think that's it. Brachycephalic dogs, which means they have problems breathing due to the shape of their head. And it also makes it difficult for them to regulate their body temperature. So these people on the internet are right because Wasabi has a little squish face and, you know, Ben, in addition with his long hair, he might find it hard to breathe and regulate his body temperature. But I think 
the criticism is maybe a little broad and misdirected. Like people were saying that not only were they like concerned for Wasabi's health, but by making him the winner, you're like promoting this breed and making more people want to buy and or, you know, breed and buy these dogs. And you're basically just like creating mm-hmm. more dogs that are going to suffer. And I think I need convincing on that because, you know, the uh, most recently when the American Kennel Club listed their most popular dog breeds, uh, Pegneses were listed as the 92nd most popular dog breed out of 197. And mm. there are other Brexphalic breeds that are ranked much higher. For example, the French Bulldog and the traditional Bulldog were ranked number four and five respectively in 2019. So I think like if your problem is the encouraging of brachycephalic dog breeds, the appearance of French bulldogs and bulldogs in the media and in other places I think is more problematic and probably where we should be directing our concern to if we have to. Um, In regards to the breed itself, I think the real change we need to ask for is the breed standard. So, you know, if we're pointing to Wasabi as a paradigm of the breed, which is, that's why he won, you know, he was, he, he won because he was Mm -hmm. supposed to be the ideal Pekingese. Um, We're basically saying that his very flat face is, and flat nose is ideal, um, which is where we're encouraging more of these dogs that would have significant health issues. Um, would you know that's where that would come from? The kennel club in the UK significantly changed the breed standard in for this breed in October two thousand and eight, and they removed the clause that said the profile should be flat with the nose well up between the eyes, and added instead that the muzzle must be evident. So I think even something small like that in the US would would make a difference, and like. Maybe Wasabi would win. Maybe he wouldn't. I don't know that much. You know, I'm not a breed expert, but I think there's ways mm-hmm. that these dogs can still exist, but we can encourage them to exist in a more healthy way. Again, I think our first point of clause should be these like more popular breeds because there is way, way, way more French bulldogs out there suffering yeah. than Wasabis. You know, I think also we could just direct our problems about, you know, dog breeds to the show in general, because it is, you know, really celebrating purebreds when there are millions of dogs who end up at and die in shelters. And that's actually a reason Mm -hmm. that animal rights advocates such as PETA have protested the show in the past. So that I kind of, agree with you know it's this sort of adopt don't shop model that we should be pushing so maybe we can you know trump westminster with a really fun show about rescue dogs like wouldn't that be adorable that would be amazing so that's where i kind of stand on that um Another element of this controversy, because of course it's a many-pronged controversy, you know, it can't just be a little dog winning a show without there being a many-pronged controversy. Another problem people had is that the owner is a white man, the breed is Chinese, but wasabi, the food, is Japanese. And yeah, yeah, it's it's a bit of it's it's pretty cringe. And it's definitely a larger conversation and not one that I'm like super qualified to weigh in on. Like I, um, I'm not Asian, so I I can't really say, you know, whether it's offensive to call a dog a Japanese name if it's Chinese. I mean, it probably is. So, you know, but I do think that learning about the origins of different breeds is super interesting. So I thought I would share a little bit about that. Basically, the breed was favored by uh, the Chinese Imperial Court as both a lap dog and a companion dog. And its name refers to the city of Beijing or Peking, Peking, uh, where the Forbidden City Mm -hmm. is located, which is where the Chinese Imperial Court would live. And um, the breed basically spread when the British and French troops 
took a bunch of the dogs during the Second Opium War in the 1860s. So it's a pretty old dog breed to be, you know, around the world. And I just think mm-hmm. learning about those origin stories and paying respects to them is definitely important. And I don't know if that's as much of a part of these dog shows. Like, it, if there was as much yeah. care into the history, would we be having a white man call his Chinese dog wasabi? I don't know. You know? Mm-hmm. So I do think it's important to share that. Finally, um, a lot of people were very up in arms about him winning at all. So kind of like how you mentioned, Micah, there were maybe some other yeah. more tra- like traditionally beautiful dogs in the contest. I believe like Scotty dogs are the ones that have like won it most over the years. Yes. And they've got this like very Sounds- distinctive coat and head shape. And, you know, I I get that. Um But a lot of people are waiting for Labradors and Golden Retrievers to win the show because, you know, they're two of the most popular dogs in the U.S. and they've never, ever won. So I think that would Mm. be really interesting. I think last year there was a dog, a Golden Retriever called Daniel that everyone was very into. He's absolutely stunning and had the most gorgeous golden coat. So I'm hoping that one day soon we have one of those dogs win because I think they're they're gorgeous. They're maybe just not as, like, refined Mm -hmm. as, like – or unusual as a little like poodle or an Ardale Terrier or something like that, you know? Yeah. Also, Flea of the Red Hot Chili Peppers went kind of crazy about this on Twitter. Uh, he tweeted, shocked and gross that they gave best in show to that little ass Pekingese. The judge had a crush on its handler. I'm sure of it. Um, I would just say like maybe leave Wasabi alone and calm down. Like it's just the dog show. I think we all have a tendency to do this though when we get into these kind of like contests. It's a bit like with the Olympics coming up, you know. We don't know anything about men's diving, but I watch like five minutes and I'm like, oh, no, his spring off the board, bad form, like seven out of ten at most. You know, you get like you think you're such an expert after just a few minutes. Yeah, yeah, I think – or like with gymnasts, yes. if they don't perfectly stick the landing, you're like, that's it. But like in reality, sticking the landing is like the least of their Absolutely. worries. But if, they, if I see a little foot wobble, I'm like, poor form, poor form. Like you will never get mm-hmm. the gold with that. So yeah, I I think maybe there's a little bit of that online. But we should we should calm down and like leave Wasabi alone because I, I think he's cute. I think – generally my verdict on this is definitely some valid points as i've mentioned but as always there's more thoughtful and constructive ways to achieve change than yelling on twitter and i think my suggestions of changing the breed standards um starting or i mean it probably exists but really getting behind a rescue dog show um and mm-hmm. sharing the origin stories of different breeds and just calming down on the internet are all, you know, really good ways that we could handle the wasabi controversy. So that's where I'll leave you on pop culture. Alrighty, well, that brings us to the end of another fabulous episode of Different Things Can Be Sad, or as uh, Texas Bee Works would say, and it was another great day of educating the public about politics and pop culture. <laughs> there. Um, Micah, what will mm-hmm. you be up to over the next month? Um, in the immediate future, I will be turning my fan back on when we stop recording because I am the melting. The things we do for your I'm very excited quality, about that. We're suffering. Yeah, I yeah. am. We really are. Um, I will be uh, hanging on Montreal a bit more, um, moving back all my stuff, um, which will be exciting. Um, hopefully finishing my master's. Not, not this mm-hmm. month, but maybe the We're month after. We'll see what happens. I'm getting very close. Um, hanging out in air-conditioned libraries. I love a bit of, a bit of free AC. Ugh, it's fantastic. So yeah, that that's me. How about you? Well, I am going to California this weekend for um, Fourth of July weekend. So that will be a nice little trip. Um, and then what else is happening in July? Let me flip up my calendar that's in front of me here. Nothing. Uh, so 
<laughs> I think actually there might be some live music this month, so I'm excited for that. Damn. But yes, you'll have to tune in next time to hear. Otherwise, you can, you know, follow it in real time. You can find me on Instagram mm-hmm. as at Yasmin Lomax. Um, you can find me on Instagram and on Twitter as at Micah Hong. And you can find the podcast for references to things we've talked about today and lots of like pictures and fun memes as at DTCBS podcast. And then we will catch you next month where we'll tell you what we did in July for sure. And we will share mm-hmm. even more politics and pop culture updates. Bye. Bye.